In the last uh, two weeks or so, Azia Bibi, who is a 16-year-old Pakistani Christian girl who was arrested and tried for blasphemy at the age of eight years and has been on death row for that entire time, that period, since 2010. She, is, she was accused and found guilty of insulting Islam by speaking negatively of the Prophet Muhammad, which, which gives us our first interesting angle, which is that it's interesting that in Judaism and Christianity and, and the Sikhs and in other religions that have blasphemy laws, they're always about God himself and never about any of his representatives, but here... It's been extended to, to the reputation of the prophet himself, which is a peculiarity given the radical monotheism and peculiar role of the prophet in that religion, but we'll leave that point aside at the beginning. The accusation is, is, is quite fascinating. It may be that she did not speak specific words of blasphemy about Muhammad but that she drank from a cup that had been already used by a Muslim, and that this is against certain canonical and folk traditions, that a Christian should never be able to drink from a cup that's been recently or unwashed since it's been used by a Muslim. And in her trial, this was mentioned as part of her blasphemy, which seems to be a very abstract form of blasphemy. But it also was said by her neighbors that she had, in order, it seems, to enhance the charge, it said that she held the prophet in, in low esteem. She was, in fact, an illiterate eight-year-old who uh, had never read the Quran and probably knew very little except in neighbor conversation about the religion at all. She was a Christian because she came from a sixth-generation Christian family who had traveled in some earlier period from Iraq as refugees. And her defense attorney argued that she had no conception whatsoever of blasphemy and that whatever was said or done with the cup or elsewhere was completely incidental and implied no intent on her part. But this was not convincing to the, to the judges, and she was found guilty. Last week, the Supreme Court of Pakistan, after eight years of deliberation, decided that she was not guilty and that her penalty would be removed and she would be released from prison. But on the occasion of their judgment being made public in Karachi and elsewhere, a giant national uprising took place, especially led by two or three extreme uh, conservative Muslim organizations. And it was said that not only, if she, if not only would she be killed by, the, by, by this uh, posse comitatus of the people of Pakistan if she tried to leave the country, but that two of the judges on the court would be murdered because of their, their own acceptance of blasphemy 
It must be remembered that in the past eight years, several public officials who defended the girl have already been murdered, including the assistant to the prime minister. Um, It's become one of the most remarkable uh, sources of upheaval and disorder and, and murder, you know. So the, so the debate about whether an eight-year-old p- p- committed blasphemy has led to at least four murders. And the proposition that at least three or four other people should be murdered under the circumstances. I mention this because I was thinking just today about this whole conception of charity and tradition and what constitutes a grave religious crime. and Now, it is true that in Leviticus 10.16, blasphemy is considered a, a, a mortal crime that you can be executed or put to death for blasphemy. And it is a Jewish tradition that lasted well into the medieval period, although the number of cases in which it was actually uh, brought to fruition are extremely small, historically. It was said by the Talmud that violence against non-Jews was only permissible if their blasphemy was against the specific Hebrew name of God. In other words, they went out of their way. In other words, if they were ignorant of the meaning of God or the name of God, then they couldn't really permit, they couldn't really uh, perform a blasphemous act. So it was very, very uncommon for non-Jews to be tried in Jewish courts in Jerusalem or elsewhere uh, in that period of about 700 years up to the early Middle Ages. So that's an interesting angle. Now, if we look at Jesus, uh, he, he takes a very new and, and mysterious angle on the, on the problem of blasphemy. As usual, he is much more permissive, charitable, and forgiving than his predecessors, whether Jewish or pagan. He, said, he says on four different occasions and in each of the Gospels that a blasphemy against the Son, meaning himself, and apparently the Father in heaven would be forgiven from this point forward. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would not be. It's an unforgivable sin. Although he said it will be punished in heaven in, this, in, the, in the 10th chapter of John. He, he makes no comment about it as a civic crime or as a... Now, one of the problems of the passages is that they are one of the most vexed and mysterious in all of Scripture. And anybody who thinks they can interpret the, the, the specific mental act, which is the blasphemy of against the Holy Spirit is probably kidding themselves because it's been debated by scholastics and by canon lawyers and by theorists of Christianity in both Catholic and Protestant circles forever. And whether it can be reduced to a simple formula is unknown, but there is some kind of blasphemy against the Spirit of God, against the living Spirit of God in this world that came after Christ to be our protector and comforter and instructor there's some kind of blasphemy against that which is unforgivable. Some have argued, and it's a strong possibility, that it refers to a rejection of the Holy Spirit's direction given to us at the time when the Antichrist comes to govern the world the end, in the end times, at the time of the, of the apocalypse. 
uh, you may know that the scriptures say that there will be a time when everybody will be divided between those who affirm and those who deny the, the authority of a, of a world ruler or leader who is in fact the Antichrist. And that those who are truly devout Christians and who live a life of prayer and virtue will be protected by the Holy Spirit and will know what to say to the Antichrist and to his minions when that time comes. And this protection uh, it will be so absolute as to put into their own mouth the proper phrases and, and words. And it has been said that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit may be a conscious rejection of this by the protected Christian, an actual rejection of the defense of the Holy Spirit against the demonic powers. Now, whether this is true or not, it does, it does seem sensible given the language of Scripture on both sides, what Christ says and what is said in the book of Revelation. But, but nonetheless, even though Christ was, took the, a rather high and, and uh, charitable road about blasphemy about himself and about the Father in heaven, nonetheless, there were cases against blasphemy throughout the church from the 8th to the 16th century, and actually some even in the 16th century. The last known death penalty for blasphemy in Christendom was in uh, 1647. Now, the Catholic Church has developed a very interesting policy about blaspheming and blasphemers. The golden, ar- the golden arrow holy face devotion, which is a massive French national movement in the 19th century, actually did seasonal prayers and litanies to protect those who had blasphemed, whether they were conscious of it or not. And this also was true of the Benedictine order, that they'd done seasonal prayers for blasphemers to protect them against their own thoughts and statements. And this became a common theme of Catholic tradition since the late Middle Ages, that there would be this protective prayer for blasphemy, at least as is understood outside the the, uh, thesis of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. However, historically, the important interesting development is that in Barcelona and Tortosa and in Rome, between the late 13th and the early 15th century, there were a series of disputations brought in public against the Talmud and against Jewish rabbinical authorities who taught using the Talmud. And the, the, th- the thought was that the Talmud had been uh, harboring blasphemous comments and theories and ideas about Jesus, and that they were now revealed in the contemporary European translations, even though in that era it was against Jewish law to translate the Talmud from Hebrew because it was too dangerous for the Jewish community to share its ideas with its neighbors. But in any event, it happened that they were translated into the European languages. When they were, these disputations took place, largely organized by former Jews who had become bishops or cardinals in, in uh, Spain and France in the late Middle Ages. And the disputations went on for many weeks, and they were... They were just, their only decision that they made was that the burning of the Talmud in Barcelona, Tortosa, Paris, and some other towns was all right, and in, in some cases 
scores, hundreds or thousands of texts of the Talmud were burned, but no single person was penalized in a serious way. No rabbis were imprisoned or killed during this entire period. Now, I just give you this review because I've been thinking of a paradox. Jesus is willing to really take, among all these people you could, revo- you could see from Jewish tradition and from later Christian tradition, let alone the very extreme versions of conservative Islam of this era, uh, you can see that Jesus took the most charitable position in his own person in the New Testament. And that, interestingly enough, blasphemy against himself, which was, you know, one could have taken that personally as a divine being, was, was to him forgivable, which is, strikes me as the, a remarkable piece of liberality on his part. Um, Thomas Aquinas made a very interesting comment about blasphemy with his normal ingenuity and circumspection. He said, he said that although blasphemy is in one sense even worse than murder, because it's addressed to a being higher than the human neighbor who is killed and therefore has a higher degree of, of, of uh, injustice connected to it. Nonetheless, because we cannot do harm to God, who is infinite and, and uh, unapproachable and all-powerful, since we cannot do harm to God by our actions or statements, and we can kill our neighbor and remove their vital powers and, their, and all their other gifts... Therefore, in, in that sense, blasphemy is a less serious crime than murder. And in the civic law, therefore, it should be considered not a mortal crime like, like uh, murder or treason, but something of a lower order, which is an interesting uh, analysis of the situation. Seemed to be the position Christ himself took, that not too much harm came to God by, by it, but a lot of harm comes to people, of course, by blasphemy, because it's a sublime misunderstanding of reality when you blaspheme. Now, I was thinking something interesting. I was thinking, in the light of this case, we have extreme uh, Muslim legalism, which is not uncommon in modern and older Muslim cultural action, a kind of cruelty which has become a national fixation in Pakistan and uh, which can barely be controlled even by the forces of the government. On the other hand, at the same time, Angela Merkel, who's a, at most, glancing Christian and actually uh, a non-practicing and probably non-believing secular person, at the very same moment where we see this, <laughs> this anti-Western, anti-Christian action in its, most, in its most visible form, we see a person like Angela Merkel, who has nothing but her own secular moral judgment guiding her, saying that the German people must take in at least one million Syrian refugees, 85% of which are Muslims, and certainly some small portion of which must have radical or terrorist leanings. Okay. But she says this is an obligation of Germans. In part, it goes back to the fact that Germans produced the largest number of refugees 
in the period between 35 and 45 that ever were known in the world. They produced the largest movable population of refugees, and their, I guess their, their historic state guilt for that has never passed away, at least not in Angela Merkel's Christian Democrat Party. And I'll go further by saying this teaches us a very strange and kind of terrifying lesson if we're Christians. I guess you should teach the same thing to Jews and Muslims under some circumstances, which is that sometimes secular people have taken in the high ideals of self-sacrifice, of charity, of even illiberal acts of charity, which may be dangerous to themselves, but which nonetheless are brought on by the obligations they have to the wandering, suffering, hopeless vagrants of the world, of the earth. And at the same time, I'm thinking the United States, with a problem infinitesimally small, which is Mexican immigration, which produces very little social upheaval or, or disor- uh, you know, disorder in the national life, has now sent an army of 15,000 soldiers to block a small, uh, a small caravan of Honduran and, and Yucatanian citizens who are seeking relief as refugees from one of the worst governments and one of the most criminally dominated cultures on earth. They're sending a group which is probably between three and 5,000, maybe fewer. They're still hundreds of miles from the border. We don't know where they're going to come or what, what's going to happen to them. They've already suffered losses. They've been in a vast struggle against the weather and the situation in Mexico. And yet, the United States, in this tiny scale of possible acceptance of refugees, or at least legal consideration of refugees, is putting a military barricade on the border of Mexico, its perennial ally. And it brings to mind the question of what governs the consciousness of the religious and the secular. When, when the 25 most influential Christian leaders in America of the evangelical movement, of the Baptist movement, and some conservative Catholics have been great advocates of Trump and his policies, of nationalism, of exclusivism, uh, this, is, this is to me one of the great paradoxes. And I often think that God has sent secular people to us to teach us things about our own religion that we've forgotten.